Good to see the house so full today. So let's pray together and we'll get started. God, our Father, we thank you for bringing us to your house of worship today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would uh, open each heart, you would open each mind, that your word would go forward today, Father, because you've promised that it won't return to you in vain, but will accomplish everything that you purpose into. And so we ask you to lend your spirit to open our hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I really hope that all of you are planning on coming back uh, later today for the picnic. It would be good to have a nice full house uh, for our first ever Independence Day church picnic. I think that's really kind of cool. But you know, this holiday that we celebrate is about so much more than, uh, than hot dogs and, and cookouts and fireworks because the 4th of July is about a country founded and rooted and established on Christian principles and reliance on Almighty God. And in keeping with that tradition, I'd like to uh, remind us of some of the words of our founding fathers. Uh, Patrick Henry of the Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death fame said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Washington, our first president, said, While we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. And to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a signatory of the Declaration of Independence and a ratifier of the Constitution, proclaimed, The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rule for just conduct in every situation in life. Happy are those who are enabled to obey them in all situations. So you can see that Despite what modern politicians or the contemporary media or revisionist historians may say, America was founded not on the concept of freedom to worship any God, but on the freedom to worship Jesus Christ according to God's word and not according to man's. And I want to look at the, the parallels between our founding fathers' allegiance to this country and our allegiance to a higher calling and to the kingdom of the Lamb, to Jesus Christ the Son of God. And I want to do it by uh, continuing our extended look through the book of Psalms that we just embarked on, right? We began last week with Psalm 1. Uh, and we can do that today because Psalm 2 tells us what God thinks of the nations of the world and of their allegiance to Him or of their lack of it. And so by extension, uh, as we go through it, it's also going to show us what God thinks of America and of our commitment to His anointed King. So let's look at it together. This is uh, Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. So hear now the words of the true and living God. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. Rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the opening of this psalm is kind of like uh, walking into a movie in the middle of the action, right? When it says in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Because right out of the gate with no lead up, it gives us this visual of people from, from various races and nationalities and ethnicities assembled together with all of their weapons of war, not in some grand cause like the siege of Yorktown or like the beaches of Normandy, but like an angry mob ready to riot. Uh, and this mob scene is no knee-jerk emotional reaction. Uh, it's, it's not a fit of passion, but rather a deliberate coming together of the inhabitants of the earth in a strategic rebellion against their maker. Right? It says, nations rage, people's plot. And the natural question of the psalmist is, why? Why? You know, if you think about it, that same question is kind of writ large across our world today, isn't it? Uh, why so much hatred? Why so much war? Why, why does crime increase? Why so much poverty in an age of prosperity? Why so many hearts filled with fear? Uh, why do we think sex and drugs and alcohol will make us happy? And why do we reject the divine guardrails of the Ten Commandments? And, and Psalm 2 today uh, traces the answer to those questions of, of war and pain and fear and mutiny against the rule of God. And you know what it does? It traces it right back to the rebellion and unrest that already exists in the human heart. That's not a surprise, is it? You know it's there. I know it's there. It's the why that we humans pursue all of those other things is to drown out the relentless thoughts and feelings that we're so predisposed to and that we don't know what to do with because they never stop. And... Note the progression of it here in the psalm. It starts from unrest on the inside to the, the murmuring with one another that, that formats defiance that gives birth to full-scale rebellion. Uh, so what starts out as uh, maybe random thoughts leads to loose talk that devolves into defiance and results in outright rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed one. Because you know what? Sooner or later, regardless of the issue, the answer always comes back to Jesus. You know, I saw a t-shirt that kind of sums up this modern hatred and rebellion. I think it sums up the idea pretty good. It's a, a t-shirt, a black t-shirt that says, Atheist worldview, item number one, God does not exist. Item number two, I hate him. Do you, do you, see, the, do you see the disconnect there? God does not exist, but I hate him. Right? They hate him. And, you know, this opposition is not against the mere notion of God. The people and rulers of this world have absolutely no problem with a generic, ambiguous, non-distinct God, a, a, a glorified grandfather, man upstairs, one that can be redesigned at our own discretion. That's just fine. Do you know what the problem is? The problem is with Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, the self-existent, self-sufficient, self-revealing God who is holiness and perfection and whose purpose and power are represented on earth in the person of his anointed of jesus christ and you know in the face of this worldwide rebellion against the lord god declares his intention someday to enthrone christ as ruler over the nations of the world and in light of that 
Psalm 2 today tells us the only proper response to his coming is humble submission to him right now and a bold declaration of our allegiance to him alone. You know, those thoughts really kind of parallel the uh, early days of the American experience because, you know, for more than 14 months after the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which happened in April 19th of 1777, the patriots fought not for their independence, but rather most of them fought uh, for the, the rights within the British Empire, rights that had gradually been taken away before and uh, even more so after the Boston Tea Party until eventually uh, hundreds of Americans had given their lives to try to regain them, uh, 400 alone at the Battle of Bunker Hill. But then early in the summer of 1776, a meeting of the Continental Congress on July 2nd of that year, the colonies voted to publicly announce and declare that they would accept nothing less than absolute freedom from England. Two days later, on July 4th, after making some minor adjustments in the text, the final wording was ratified and signed by 56 members representing the 13 colonies. Uh, and after the declaration was signed, couriers took it to George Washington, who was uh, with his troops in New York. And on July 9th, the Declaration of Independence was read aloud before the militia troops who were all stationed in the field. You know, this was no little thing. This is, this is not just some scrap of uh, governmental memorandum. Understand, this is a bold pronouncement. Uh, this was a profound statement for this tiny little band of Americans to challenge the most powerful empire on earth at the time. Right? They made a bold announcement. They pledged their life and their allegiance to their country. And because of that, you know, they paid a high price. Because, you know, just professed commitment was not enough. So remember, after we declared our independence, we still had to take hold of it, right? And that task proved especially difficult, partly because not all of the people ever fully united behind the war effort. A large number of colonists, some historians say maybe about a third, remained unconcerned about the outcome of the war, and, and in their selfish indifference, really supported neither side. Just kind of waited to see who was going to win, to see how it was going to play out. So that victory in the Revolutionary War came to depend on patriots who made up significantly less than the entire population. Uh, and you know, that is exactly the condition of the body of Christ today in our battle for the soul of America. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to make a really bold declaration in the comfort of this church building, right? That's super easy. But it's quite another to live up to it, to pay the price and to fulfill it on the battlefields of our daily lives. Because, uh, you know, saying words is easy. Taking action is a lot tougher, especially in this politically correct culture where uh, the church has gone from loving the hurting and healing the sick and holding out a message of hope to sinners uh, to this counterfeit message that says, uh, uh, you're okay and, and I'm okay and, and God doesn't care either way, right? A message that says, God loves you just how you are. And you know, that is true. That is true. But the larger truth is he loves you too much to leave you unchanged. He loves you too much to leave you unchanged. And, and I really want you to think about this for a minute. If God loves us just the way we are, if he's never angry with sin or sinners, if we can all just live out our self-determined choices and do whatever we want, then what in the world do we need Jesus for? Right? What do we need Jesus for? What was the point of the cross? Why did he have to die? Right? What was the point of Christ coming to identify with us 
in our infirmities. But you know what, brothers and sisters? The reason is because God is holy. And He desires for us to be holy as well. Except the truth is we don't really want to be. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want to be with the crowd, ready to revolt. We want to shout, let's burst our bonds, let's break off these chains, let's throw off these cords. Right? And what are, what are those cords? Well, just to give you a couple, traditional marriage is one of them. You know, in our, in our day, marriage has been redefined so that uh, open relationships and uh, unashamed adultery and same-sex unions have become commonplace in America. That's our reality. You know, as a society, we don't like the chain of one man, one woman, so we promote promiscuity and we laugh at infidelity and we welcome degrading pornography into our homes and we mock those who uphold traditional values while at the same time we enshrine the rebels of Hollywood who sleep around and call it sexual freedom. Uh, And hey, for them it's really no big deal because uh, if they have an inconvenient pregnancy, one simple outpatient trip can get rid of a baby before the next weekend comes around again, right? And it happens today even in Christian circles because not everyone is committed to the war effort. Not everyone who claimed to have claimed Jesus as their Lord lives up to that daily declaration in their lives. And if they're honest, are not really all that concerned about the outcome of the war on Christian values. They're indifferent. They're uninvolved. They, They may not directly hinder the war effort and they certainly will take part in any benefits one, but they don't join in. They don't leave the safety and, uh, and comfort of their homes. They simply watch from the sidelines and, and critique the battles. You know, but then almost before Psalm 2 gets done declaring that sad reality, it tells us how our God feels about this state of affairs. It says in verse 4, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see, in the narrative of this psalm, God the Father now responds to the spreading rebellion on earth and what does he say about a runaway world? He laughs, right? Does that surprise you? Well, guess what? He's not surprised at all. Because, you know, it's not as if God is pacing the throne room of heaven saying, man, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right? No. In contrast to the chaos on earth, there is perfect peace in heaven where our God is comfortably seated because God is enthroned. He's not embattled. He laughs. Laughs in derision at our puny efforts to defy him like a, like a father who, who laughs when his little three-year-old son says, come on, Dad, let's wrestle and I'll beat you. Right? It's a joke. Can a flea defeat an elephant? Can humanity shoot a rocket to destroy the throne of God or threaten his kingdom with defeat like an earthly empire? Not a chance. Not a chance. Do you know that war of independence that we were talking about that began on that April 19, 1775, officially ended when the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, uh, and that nearly two years after the the Battle of Yorktown, where 100,000 enemy troops laid down their arms and General Cornwallis hid in a cave. You know, the British loss of the American colonies was tremendous. Uh, And it not only took its toll on England, but on England's king, King George III, who... uh, already being prone to physical and psychological illness. His episodes now became more frequent and his doctors had no idea how to help him. It was common knowledge uh, already that he had a learning disability and was not exceptionally bright. Uh, But on top of that, he had very little personality and almost no public presence. 
Uh, it's been said that when foreign ambassadors came to speak to him, they left unimpressed. Uh, and, and even many of his own people uh, thought of him as unfit for his high position. And although his wife and children stood by his side through everything, when he died in January of 1820, uh, he was angry and bitter and half crazy, leaving his nation diminished and deeply in debt. But not so with God's king. The Lord says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. You're my son. Verse 6 tells us that God's response to human chaos is Jesus. He's installed Christ as king. And from, from our perspective, there's almost a divine sense of irony here. He's saying, uh, you killed my son. But the day is coming when he will reign over all the earth from the very city where you put him to death. He says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so my question to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is do you think Jesus forgot to ask? Or do you think he said, No, Father, that's all right. Let humanity determine their own destiny. Let them set their own rules. Or do you think that God is somehow pleading with humanity, please take, take my son as your king. He's, he's good, and he's kind, and he's meek, and he's mild. No, so, Psalm 2 declares that he's king of kings already. And our founding fathers knew that, even if we've forgotten it in the 21st century. Because, you know, the trouble is, as one author said, we've been educated just enough to believe what we're told, but not educated enough to question it, which is why our country is in the state that it's in. You know, God blessed our new nation in the past because it was founded on Christian principles and not because it ran from them. Even our public schools taught the Christian religion. Uh, the Bible was the main reading book in every state school followed by the New England Primer. Uh, and that book, along with teaching the basics of elementary education, discussed topics like respect for parents, the meaning of sin, the idea of salvation, and some versions even contain the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we read before we started the Heidelberg. Uh, and it remained in print well into the 19th century. Can you imagine teaching that in a school today? Right? It would be unthinkable. It would be unthinkable. Because the sad truth is we are now living in a post-Christian nation. Right? And when did that happen? Well, uh, when did we stop being that Christian nation we were? Well, it stopped when Christians became the silent majority. Uh, it stopped when pastors started, stopped preaching biblical sermons from the pulpit. It stopped when we became ashamed to speak the name of Jesus in public. And it stopped when we as Christians stopped being the salt and the light of the world. You know, and now that the country has collectively gotten us into this mess, how do we get out? Where do we go from here? Well, I, I want to suggest that we go right back to Psalm 2 where we started and see that it ends with a gracious invitation and a solemn warning. Remember, we read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Because you see, Psalm 2 started out by describing the world as it is. We live in a world where Jesus is rejected. We live in a world where the majority want nothing to do with him. We live in a world where little men rage against the Son of God. But the psalm closes with how the world will be. And it calls the church back to its ultimate mission. Back to its first love. To a personal submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. 
to a proclamation of the gospel to everyone, to every person of every tribe and race and nation on the earth, and to trust in God's ultimate sovereignty in the salvation of his people and the promise of the perfect recreation of his world. And you know that knowledge should cause us to serve the Lord with every fiber of our being, trembling in joy and fear. You know, one commentator said on this passage, that means with reverence and an awful sense of God's great and glorious majesty, rendering you careful and diligent to please him, and afraid to offend him, and to rejoice knowing that it is a greater glory and happiness to be the subject of this king than to be the emperor of the greatest empire, and accordingly rejoice in it, and bless God for this inestimable grace and benefit with trembling, not as a fearful looking for judgment, but in giving all the glory of what we have to Christ. Right, so today, as a church and as a nation, let's lift up the name of Jesus as the only hope of the world, and let's invite the rebels on the other side to put down their weapons and to join us in this great celebration of God's Son, the Anointed One, our coming King Jesus. Because, brothers and sisters, God has blessed America, and we need to praise God that He's answered America's cries in the past and pray that He will do so again, helping us to, to know that Jesus Christ is our refuge in this nation and for the world, so that no matter uh, who holds political power in the marble halls of Washington or the mayor's office in Zephyr Hills, Jesus Christ is still our king. Right? You know, when the founding fathers finished the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, they closed the document by writing, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And brothers and sisters, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ deserves no less from us. Because ultimately the hope of America is not found in the White House or in the State House or in the Courthouse. The hope of America is found right here in God's house. And we need to invite everyone we meet to come and to see what our God has done, to come and be united with Christ and washed in his blood courageously announcing that nothing else can break the shackles of sin and of rebellion in this world than boldly pledging our allegiance and our loyalty and our very lives to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. To the Christ who invites us to this table of freedom, commanding us to die to self so that we can really live for Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, it is... Truly right in our greatest joy, always and everywhere, to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. The Supper recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and your love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit on us and upon these gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.